Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, August 29th. And we are starting with Proverbs chapter 15, verse 7. Uh, and we're using, obviously, the new technology tonight. So uh, if you do want to make a comment, feel free to unmute your microphone to do that. Or you're welcome to type in questions and comments as we go. Uh, in the chat box. This is designed to be an interactive class uh, and you'll get the most benefit out of it uh, if you interact with the, uh, the questions and the ideas that come up. So uh, feel free to do so as we go. Um, but we're beginning in uh, chapter 15 verse 7 of Proverbs and the verse reads, The lips of the wise are pure knowledge but the mind of the fool is not so. The lips of the wise are pure knowledge, and that's Rashi's translation, but the mind of the fool is not so. Now, just to review our process, before we try to dive in and figure out what exactly is the verse saying, the very first step is to begin by asking questions. What kinds of questions come to mind as we look at those words, and let me get that up on the screen here. The lips of the wise are pure knowledge, but the mind of the fool is not so. What kinds of questions would we want to ask and subsequently answer in order to be able to understand what this verse is talking about? And when we think about questions, we're thinking about what needs definition, what isn't clear, what seems odd or unusual, uh, anything along that lines. Learning to ask good questions is a developed skill. And part of the learning in Mishlei, in the book of Proverbs, is to learn that skill. So we take each verse and we start by asking questions about it, uh, and then we'll get to figuring out what the meaning of the verse is. So as you look at those words, what kind of questions come to mind? The lips of the wise are pure knowledge, but the mind of the fool is not so. What do you think? Okay, Amy, good, thank you. Uh, what are, why are lips compared to hearts? And Linda, what kind of knowledge are we talking about? Okay, lips of the wise are pure knowledge. What, what's the knowledge? Uh, and why is the juxtaposition lips versus a mind? Uh, you would think it would be lips of the wise in the first half, and maybe lips of the fool in the second half, but it doesn't talk about the lips, it talks about the mind. Uh, good. Uh, who are the wise? Excellent, Vicki. Uh, what, what does that mean? Uh, sometimes when we look at these things, it's very easy to say, oh yeah, I know what that means, except when we have to articulate it, uh, it becomes more difficult. So these are good questions. We want to zero in and understand what each of these things uh, is about. And... Uh, uh, in addition, maybe as a, a bit of a follow-on, Janine, to your question, why not the mind of the wise in addition to their lips? Um, why doesn't it say that the mind of the fool is not pure? Um, the, the verse reads, the lips of the wise are pure knowledge, but the mind of the fool is not so. Why didn't it just say the mind of the fool is not pure? You know, pure in the first half, not pure in the second half. What What's happening there? So... Uh, as many of you know, my mentor in this uh, in this book and in my Torah learning uh, over the last 20 years has been Rabbi Morton Moskowitz. Uh, I've had great mentoring from other rabbis, uh, but I've had the privilege of working with Rabbi Moskowitz uh, the most over the last uh, couple decades. And so he thinks that this verse is talking only about the mind and not the emotions. So in, in your life, you've really got two things going on. You've got your intellect and you've got your emotions. And much of the book of Mishlei is about uh, the question of which of those are you going to use to make your decisions in life. Now, the fool sometimes speaks with a mixture of what we might call dross. Dross is the impurities uh, when you... Uh, mine uh, and process uh, a metal, and I think it's referred to in, 
uh, particularly in Mishlei with regard to silver. Uh, but the fool sometimes speaks with a mixture of good and evil mixed. Uh, and in this case, what it's getting at is the mind itself is not perfected. It's not that the emotions are coming through. We talk a lot in other verses about the emotions uh, coming through, but uh, Rabbi Moskowitz is suggesting that's not what this verse is uh, getting at. Uh, but it's talking about where there is uh, a lack of a, uh, a, a pure mind or a, a well-trained mind. Now, the Torah can't give you a better mind than what you have at birth. We all get what we get. Um, and, and that's just part of that. Uh, if you think about um, you know, certain uh, baseball players, uh, I think it was uh, perhaps a Babe Ruth, who had the ability to, you know, see a ball coming very quickly and react just a little bit faster than other people so that he was able to hit, uh, you know, much better than others. Well, that is somewhat of a natural uh, gift. Uh, and, you know, there are certain things in, in other parts of life that people are perhaps born with. We get the mind that we get. But what the Torah can do is help you to train that mind. And so, how does that happen? How do we, how do we train it? How do we get a pure mind? And Rabbi Moskowitz suggested uh, two approaches to that. One, there are certain subjects that train the mind. Uh, and there's probably no better subject on that than Talmud. Uh, but for us beginners, and I classify myself uh, there, uh, the book of Proverbs can help to a certain extent because we take one point at a time, uh, one verse at a time, and we work it through, uh, and that's what we're doing in this class. Talmud takes on more complicated sequences of ideas, uh, and uh, Rabbi Moskowitz commented that uh, math is not even equal to uh, Talmud. Uh, Talmud is, is incredibly uh, complex, and really when you learn to go through it, it is a huge training of the mind. I will add, uh, just for clarity, that Talmud is not a book that you can learn yourself, uh, or a, uh, it's a whole compendium of, of volumes, but you cannot learn Talmud on your own. You have to have uh, a teacher to help guide you through that. Then the second idea as to how you can uh, get a pure mind is the study of logic itself. If your mind is not trained properly, or you have uh, something in your mind like what this verse is referring to that is a defect. I'm not talking about a, a mental defect in, in the sense of something you know biochemical or biophysical, but that your mind has simply not learned how to uh, reason correctly or some type of incorrect thinking process, then you need to train the mind in terms of logic. Uh, a good source of this uh, is Rabbi Chait's recordings on logic, uh, or at least his introduction to logic, and he has a whole series of tapes uh, on logic or recordings that are available uh, at www.ybt for Yeshiva B'nai Torah Dot .org Now it's interesting that uh, at least in the west uh, a number of colleges actually train you to have a laziness of the mind because when you go through a class if you think about a typical college class uh, in the United States uh, often what they want you to do is just memorize a bunch of facts and spit them back on a test that's not a training of the mind. Training of the mind involves grappling with the ideas and learning how to reason correctly and how to differentiate between facts and interpretations, how to reach proper conclusions, uh, and that kind of thing. So uh, that is a real training of the mind. Simply saying here, read 50 pages and then we're gonna test you on how much you remember of that, that's not a training of the mind, all it does is teach you to stuff a bunch of facts in your head and be able to spit them back on a test. 
So if you have the option uh, and you're involved in the world of education for yourself or the world of education for uh, your children or other children, seeking out educational programs that involve interaction and discussion and analysis uh, and original thinking would be preferable to the classic read the textbook and spit it back to me approach that unfortunately is so common in many educational institutions. Okay, let me pause. Any questions uh, on that? And Charles, thanks for putting up that, uh, uh, that web reference. Any questions on this verse? Okay, good, thanks. Uh, we'll move ahead then. If you do have questions, please feel free to uh, put them in the chat box or uh, unmute your microphone and just interrupt me. Uh, so we're moving on to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. And this verse reads, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God, and the prayer of the righteous is his will. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God, and the prayer of the righteous is his will. So as we did in the previous verse, let me pause and ask, what are the questions? Excellent, Louis, thank you. What's the sacrifice of the wicked? What does that mean? Okay, and Janine, thank you. What is the definition of God's will? Uh, excellent. When we say the prayer of the righteous is his will, people talk about God's will all the time. Uh, and so what, what does that actually mean? Uh, uh, Prescott, why would the wicked sacrifice at all? Very good question. If a person's wicked, what are they going to be doing with sacrifices? You know, they're not going to be part of that. Uh, Okay, good. And uh, Linda, what's the righteous? Yes. So when it talks about the prayer of the righteous, who are they? Um, and Amy, can prayers be analogous to sacrifice then in some cases? Okay, very interesting question because we've got this juxtaposition here between the first half and the second half. So if the first half is talking about sacrifices, the second half is talking about prayer, uh, what's the relationship between those? Very good questions. Excellent. Um, some others. We can't know anything about God. Uh, and if it says that something is an abomination uh, to God, then it's saying that we know something about God, like he has discussed about something. But since we can't know anything directly about God, that creates kind of a conundrum here, a problem. Now, just to clarify, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz has suggested over the years, there are only two things that we can know about God. Number one, we can know what he is not. I mean, it's pretty easy to prove that God is not a cup of hot chocolate or is not my chair or something along that line. And the second is we can know how God relates to the world because we get some information about that from the Torah, and we can make observations about the world itself. But those are only things that we see that are essentially effects, how God affects the world. We can't know directly about God. So this verse presents us with kind of a, a funny issue here. Uh, you know, if it says that, that this sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God, so it obviously means God doesn't like that, so God has some kind of disgust around it, but how can that be? Um, and, second question would be, even if we do say something about that, what does that have to do with the book of Proverbs? I mean, we've talked before that the book of, purpose of the book of Proverbs is to teach us how to deal in the physical world, in the laws of nature, everyday life, and how we're going to evaluate situations and make decisions. So what does that have to do? What is telling us that, you know, something is bothersome to God? Well, what does that do for me? Um, and uh, I think question was raised earlier, what is the wicked's 
sacrifice. Okay. Now let me pause. Um, Jerry, you ask which translation you were using. Um, I generally work out of the art scroll version, although in some cases uh, I'm going off the basis of recordings and notes of classes with Rabbi Moskowitz where he translated from the uh, original. And the different commentators sometimes translate the verses slightly differently. So uh, sometimes what I'll share in this class is you know, virtually directly equivalent to what the art scroll chooses. Uh, sometimes it might be a little bit different. That doesn't make one wrong and one right. Uh, there are some verses where they can legitimately be interpreted in different ways. Uh, and and uh, as long as, uh, you know, the interpretation is valid with the Hebrew language and, uh, or rather the, the uh, translation is valid with the Hebrew language and the interpretation appropriately fits the translation, uh, then it be can be considered valid. So as you read through the commentaries, um, then uh, you, you'll see that sometimes they take a different approach. So <laughs> appreciate that you would want to want to get what I'm using as well. The one I have found most helpful is the Art Scroll because they give um, an anthology of, uh, of different uh, commentators. And there are two volumes to it. It's available in two volumes, the first 15 chapters and then the uh, chapter 16 and beyond. Judaica Press also puts out one um, uh, and uh, they'll be able, they also have a compendium of commentaries. Uh, although if you had to choose only one or the other, I think the art scroll is a little bit uh, perhaps easier to work with. Um, uh, okay, and uh, uh, Prescott, if you can't find it at your local store, it is available online uh, through um, uh, Art Scrolls online store, uh, and they could ship that to you. Now, Sajigan says that when something painful comes up for a person, he should evaluate the pain that he'll have now versus the results he'll have in the future. And similarly, when you face uh, a pleasure, you should evaluate the present situation versus the future situation. In other words, what's my immediate pleasure versus what's my long-term pleasure? So all of Proverbs is here to teach us in great detail how to make these kinds of evaluations in everyday life. Now, that gets us back to what is the idea of God finding something abominable have to do with Proverbs? Uh, because uh, the verse just doesn't seem to belong in that context. So, a uh, question was raised, I think, or, uh, earlier about what is the sacrifice of the wicked? What, what does that mean? So, one commentator says that the sacrifice of the wicked means that it was stolen. Uh, and the Ralbag says that, uh, that the person has bad thoughts. But both have one thing in mind here. And that is that a person is doing a religious act and he is hiding the fact that he is wicked. Both of those commentators are saying that this is the subject here. That a person is doing a religious act and he's hiding behind his religiosity to cover up his wickedness. Now, that raises a question. Is he hiding the fact that he himself is wicked? Or is he hiding the wicked act itself? According to the Ibn Ezra, uh, it's a stolen animal, but he's doing a religious act through the means of that wicked act. In other words, the guy went and stole like uh, the animal necessary for a sacrifice, and now he's publicly bringing the animal up to do the sacrifice. So he's trying to uh, do the religious act, the sacrifice, but he's doing it through the means of a wicked act, which was stealing the animal in the first place. And according to the Ral Bag, he's faking out the public. He's trying to fool the public uh, 
that uh, he's not a wicked person when in reality he is. Now, when it says sacrifice, uh, it means or it represents a religious act. So notice that on the other side of the verse, and this gets to one of the questions that was raised, it says the prayers, the prayer of the righteous. The prayer of the righteous means that he's doing something in private. You can't see a person's prayers. Uh, but the wicked person does religious acts in public to cover up his wickedness, while the righteous are doing their relating to God in a private environment. You don't see the motives and the thoughts of the righteous. They keep it private. Therefore, the righteous is not focused on the public. He's just relating to God directly. Now, it does seem like everyone has wicked thoughts at one time or another. So, gee, does that mean we're all wicked? And the answer is no. The acts of the wicked, <laughs> one person said, the, the acts of the wicked are the dreams of the righteous. In other words, we all have wicked thoughts. But the righteous person has no plan to carry out that act. He realizes that it's an emotion, and he realizes it's a weakness, and he realizes that he has to deal with it. And he has to be on his guard to make sure that he doesn't manifest that desire into an act. By contrast, the wicked makes plans in reality to carry out his wickedness. And according to the Ibn Ezra, the wicked person actually stole the animal in order to bring it for a sacrifice. So for him, the very act of religiosity is through a sin. If you have evil thoughts, as I understand it, there is nothing wrong with that. That's human, you know, except perhaps for someone in a very, very high level. But for the rest of us, that's part and parcel of what we get. And even for someone at a very, very high level, there are no saints in the world of Torah. There are just human beings. And in fact, if you read through the Torah, you find that the Torah is very clear about the mistakes that great people of Torah made. You know, it doesn't try to sugarcoat it or, or uh, you know, uh, make you think that those people didn't have, uh, you know, make errors. Uh, they're very, very clear. This Torah is very, very clear about such matters. So, insofar as you have an evil thought, there's nothing wrong. You can't be condemned for that. The wicked person, his evil thoughts lead to him carrying out the actual actions. And he wants to cover it up from the public by appearing to be very religious. Okay, now, we can only know, as we mentioned earlier, how God relates to us. And as I mentioned before, there are only two things you can know about God. One is what he is not, and the other is uh, how he relates to us. And God relates to us in three ways. First, through the laws of nature, through his uh, the laws of nature that we deal with every day. You know, we go out and there's weather and there's gravity and there's physics and mathematics and all those things that are built as part of the systems that God created. The second way that God relates to us is through his personal intervention in particular cases for people who are at a high enough level to warrant it. Okay, so that's God's personal uh, intervention. And then there are miracles. Okay, sometimes God does those, and uh, we've, we've seen those, you know, we read about those uh, in the Torah. Okay, now let me pause because I, I see a couple comments. Uh, Prescott, you said, though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets up again. Absolutely. He, he keeps at it, and he will make mistakes, and he'll see them, and he'll analyze them, and look at why he made them, and then 
uh, he'll get back up and say, okay, now I know what to do next so I don't repeat that mistake. And that's the process of repentance. I mean, God gave us repentance as a gift uh, so that we would be able to get up, look at the mistakes, say, hmm, shouldn't have done that. Uh, and then I'll go back and analyze, well, what caused me to do that? What emotion drove me to do that? And what steps can I take to circumvent that and make sure that I don't make that mistake again? So it's a, it's a, a very rational and, um, I guess I'd say non-guilt analysis of what happened. It's not about beating myself up or making myself feel bad. Uh, you know, I already saw what I did. Okay, I regret it. I'm sorry that that happened. Now what can I do to fix it? So it, it becomes a very practical thing. And Mona, you ask, how does the righteous one pray according to his will? Uh, let me hold that thought, if I can, uh, and, and let's continue on and see if we can get uh, to an answer on that. And if I don't uh, answer that, feel free to uh, uh, circle back and, and remind me of that. Now, Proverbs deals basically with the first way of those three ways that God relates to us, and that is through the laws of nature. So when the verse says an abomination to God, it's talking about how God relates to us. We're talking here about the laws of nature. And therefore, the laws of nature are such that this person will be destroyed. That is, this person within the laws of nature, this wicked person, this person that brings the, the sacrifice that's an abomination to God, that person will have to be destroyed. Now, when we're dealing with the laws of nature and we're going to predict that the laws of nature will destroy you, as in this verse, we're talking about high probability. When it's dealing with the second way that God relates to us, God's personal intervention, then there's no question God will cause it to happen. But when you're dealing with the laws of nature, you're talking about high probability. When God created the laws of nature, he created the laws of nature to fit into the philosophy of Torah. Now, there's a midrash that says when God created the world, he looked into the Torah. What does it mean? It means that the laws of nature are created according to the philosophy of Torah. And with the laws of nature, it doesn't have to be 100%. It's a high probability, uh, but doesn't have to be 100%. If you look around, you'll see that there's a high probability that these people, the, the wicked people, will be destroyed as a result of the things that they do. Now, as we mentioned before in Proverbs, the subject matter is how to live within the laws of nature and how to evaluate situations in the laws of nature. So here's an example of how the laws of nature work. Suppose a person, say, cheats in school. I'll submit to you that the worst thing that can happen for that person is that he's successful in cheating. Why? Because that success is a tremendous motivator for him to continue on that path. In other words, if you fail, you know, if you try to cheat and you fail, then you might say, well, gee, this is obviously not the way to go. That didn't work out very well. But success is a tremendous motivator to continue doing what you were doing. So a person cheats, he's successful at it, he now has a very strong emotional motivator to keep doing that. And so I cheat once, I'm successful, I cheat a second time and a third time, and I'm successful those times, now what's happened to me? My emotions have started to become attached to cheating. And that starts to impede my ability to think clearly through reality and see the consequences, the natural consequences of what I'm doing. Now, when I cheat, there are a few emotions at play here. It's not just one. There's, there's several that I'm satisfying. 
first, a person is getting results without the work. So it satisfies my desire not to work. And the second is that I feel good because I beat the system. You know, look at my other classmates. You know, everybody else is working normally. They're struggling with the homework, everything. But hey, I don't have to. I'm going out playing, but I figured out how to cheat. And so I beat them. And so I beat the system. And there's an emotion about beating my competitors. You know, my classmates are behind. I'm ahead. Hey. I'm pretty cool. And it gets to that, that competitive thing I have with the other people about trying to beat them. Third, I'll try for success even though it harms other people. How does it harm other people? For example, I might get into a college that I don't deserve to get into because of my cheating. And I don't care that others didn't get in. I'm not thinking about the other people. I'm thinking more about myself than anybody else. So there's a bunch of different emotions at play that are being reinforced every time I cheat and every time I'm successful and get away with it. Now, as that person becomes more entrenched in cheating, he or she becomes more attached to all these emotions. And therefore, these emotions become more real than reality. And it becomes harder and harder to discern the difference between my, my sense of reality, which is satisfying all these emotions, and the true reality, until it gets to a point where the cheating becomes virtually an accepted mode of operation for that person. And that can spill over into business, and taxes, and, and my relationship with my spouse, and all kinds of other areas of my life. And what happens is the person gets so used to the idea that they can basically cheat reality that they end up going too far because they feel so very secure, and they go so far that eventually it has to become public. They have to get caught. Okay, And if you look around in the news, you see people that have this happen to them. You know, scandals and people suddenly who everybody thought were wonderful, great people, and you discover they've been living this secret life and doing all these things that they thought uh, that no one would ever discover. And sure enough, sooner or later, they come to light. Uh, and then the person is ruined and disgraced and, you know, their life is essentially destroyed. So as a person becomes successful at doing this, uh, at doing a, a wickedness, of fooling others, of cheating others, they feel more and more secure. And then there's that ego factor that says, look, I'm successful and I won't get caught. So the farther and farther you move away from reality, the odds are of getting caught become greater and greater until it's virtually impossible for you not to get caught. So what we're saying here is uh, that for a person who does evil, in a hidden way, so that he feels that because it's hidden from the public, he won't get caught and he'll be successful. King Solomon is saying in this verse, uh-uh, doesn't work like that. Not going to happen. Your emotions are going to dig you in so deep, and through those emotions, you'll deny reality so much, and it will be so spread out through those several emotions that we just discussed that sooner or later, you're going to slip, and it's going to become public. Now, when you're starting out in life and you start doing something evil that you think you can keep hidden, like cheating, Proverbs is telling us here you need to stop and evaluate and see that you will become a different person in maybe 10 years. Recall how much we've talked in this class about consequences. In 10 years, you won't be watching yourself as closely and as carefully as you are now. In the beginning, when someone starts to cheat, you know, uh, say on a test way back in school, you know, they're really scared. What if I get caught? And they're, you know, they're looking at things very closely. But after you start getting in your mind, hey, I can get away with this, you know, you aren't as careful. 
And in 10 or 15 years, when thinking like this becomes second nature to you, it's going to come out. So the thing to do and what Proverbs is telling us here is you need to stop now. Think about your act now, even though you could get away with it. But the consequences are that 10 or 15 years down the road, you are going to get caught. So when I talked earlier about the laws of nature is not 100% certain, yes, it is possible that a person could go all the way through his life and keep his evil completely hidden and die without getting caught. But what's the probability of that happening? Uh, I mean, that's, you know, I don't know that the numbers compare, but you could say, well, it is possible I could jump out of an airplane at 10,000 feet without a parachute and live. Yeah, but what's the probability? Anybody want to take those odds? I mean, the probability is virtually nil. So Proverbs is saying you're going to get caught and you need to think about that now. That is the approach of Proverbs. Uh, it's, it's the philosophy of Torah fitting right into uh, the laws of nature. Okay, uh, let me pause and make sure that I, everybody's clear and if there are any questions. Uh, Charles, yes, you're right. Any kind of cheating uh, is a very, very slippery slope. Uh, okay. Good, Janine, did I define God's will? Not quite yet, but thank you for reminding me. Uh, and let me just look here at my notes um, to make sure. Okay, so let me cover that off right now. So, so what is God's will? You know, we talk about God's will, and it says the prayer of the righteous is his will. What God's will is, is that you operate in accordance with an intellectual analysis of the world and the laws of nature and that you operate in accordance with your mind. God's will is not this magical thing like telling us to go be a doctor or a lawyer or a, a peace worker in Biafra or you know a message that we expect to hope to get in a FedEx envelope that tells us what to do. Uh, yes. Thank you, Prescott. It's totally dispensing with this magical thinking idea. God's will is that you operate in accordance with the laws of nature and your rational mind, and that you make analyses of long and short-term consequences, and that you think about those consequences, and that when you make mistakes, you analyze what those are about and operate in accordance with what you know and your knowledge level, and that you're constantly working on developing and improving your character, uh, and, you know, increasing your knowledge and understanding. Now, Charles, you've asked, aren't we judged on more than just operating within the laws of nature? We do have halakhic requirements. So let me make sure everybody understands there's kind of two sides to this. There is halakha, which is Torah law, and then there's philosophy. Uh, okay, and some law, some issues are halakhic. Uh, for example, I'm not allowed to um, steal from someone. Uh, I'm not allowed to eat the limb of a living animal. I'm not allowed to commit uh, idolatry. Uh, I, I don't have a choice about those. That's the law, and I have to follow it. Uh, but when it gets into uh, other areas about uh, philosophy and the way I live my life, then we're talking here about uh, the book of Proverbs and how do I live the best life possible? What's, what's the best way for me to do that? It's to operate in accordance with uh, my intellect and analyze situations and, um, uh, and, and use my mind. Now, Charles, to your point, excuse me, are we judged on that? Judged is an interesting term. So I'd like to suggest a framework to think about that. Uh, sometimes we can easily think of uh, judgment in that somebody's standing right over the back of me, staring down at everything I do, and is about to whack me if I mess up and do the wrong thing. But let me give this example. If we took a, uh, a person, and they're born, and they live to age 40, and all along from age 0 to age 40, we feed them uh, the healthiest, most nutritional, organic food possible that we can get. 
uh, and the person, you know, exercises and does their best to stay in good shape. Now let's take that, look at that person at age 40. Now let's take another person, also born at age zero, as we all are, and lives to 40, but has been fed junk food, and the worst kind you can think of, you know, fried everything in rancid oil and all kinds of lousy stuff, and they eat nothing but that until age, uh, until age 40. Probably that person is going to have some health problems uh, and maybe some severe health problems by that time. Now, at that moment, when we look at the age 40 person that's in good health versus the age 40 who isn't in good health, I don't think we would say, well, God came along and judged them. What we would say is, you got the natural consequences of your actions over that 40 year span. So when we talk about, well, does, how does God judge us? I'll suggest to you that a key aspect of that is we get the natural consequences of our actions. And a person who lives in accordance with the lessons of Mishle, who explores Musser, who lives in accordance with reality, who analyzes situations, who takes a broad view of humanity and acts in accordance with justice, that person is going to end up getting a different set of consequences on a whole lot of levels in his or her life than a person who operates in accordance with his or her immediate emotional desires. You know, I want this, I want that. I don't care about the impact on anybody else. Just give me what I want and give it to me now uh, and, and get snappy about it. That person is also going to get a series of consequences in their life that are going to be different than the first person. In the same way, I would suggest that that's not about God, you know, or somebody standing up there going, okay, I'm going to whack you for that and not whack you for that, but it's about the natural consequence of our actions. Does God specifically judge people for stuff? You know, I, that's an area that's probably beyond the scope of, uh, of this class, uh, and I think there are certain situations where uh, God does. But I don't want to underestimate the fact that we have control over a huge amount of our lives and then the consequences we, we get in life are a result of the choices and decisions that we make. Um, so, okay, good, Charles, thanks. I'm, I'm glad that helps. Yeah, that uh, food discussion can really stir up the hunger. Um, so, Mona, how do we deal with the attitudes? Good question, because we've all got them. We've all got attitudes, we've all got emotions, and they're with us every day. And I'll suggest to you that the way to do it is to first just be aware of what's happening. I mean, part of the way that you deal with it is by going over the ideas that we do in these classes. Uh, you cannot, um, in, in my view, based on everything I've studied and I've looked at psychology and a lot of different things, you cannot like uh, force yourself not to feel a certain way. It's very difficult. Um, one particular psychiatrist uh, made the comment that uh, there are four things going on at once. Um, this is William Glasser, uh, and uh, he uh, developed an approach called reality therapy. Uh, but he said there are four things going on at once at any point in time within you. Uh, your emotions, uh, your thinking, your behavior... And then, if I understood him right, the, the autonomic things, your breathing and your respiration, your heart rate, and those kinds of things. And he suggested that there are only two of those that you can directly control. One is uh, your thinking, and the other is your actions. Your emotions, in his view, you can't directly you know, attack, but that you can change them by working on the other two things. So... In terms of getting a better understanding of, of dealing with our emotions, it is to go over and over these ideas in our mind uh, and seeing clearly in our mind the consequences of what those things do to us. If, for example, I get angry about something, uh, then when I'm in the middle of it, it is a very challenging time to try to deal with it. But after I'm past the anger, um, then... I can uh, go back and go over these ideas, look at the anger, see what caused it, and just review those ideas 
and let them just burble through my mind. And by reviewing them, that can begin to affect those emotions and allow me uh, to rise above them. Uh, now, Mona, you said uh, it's the vibes that are sent out by others. So are you talking about how do I deal with the attitudes of others? I'm just a little unclear on your, on your point there. Ah, okay, good, thank you. Uh, so, the way that I deal with the attitudes of others is uh, in part by going through Michelet and learning about uh, what the consequences are of dealing with a particular person in a particular way. So, for example, if I'm dealing with an angry person, uh, there are certain things that I can do that will make that situation worse. Uh, there are certain things that I can do that will make that situation better. At the end of the day, I am not responsible for their emotions. There's only, I'm only responsible, I submit, for three things. What I think uh, and what I do and what I say. Uh, their emotions and their attitudes are their responsibility. I certainly need to pick carefully what I think and do and say in a particular situation because my the words I use could do everything from help calm the situation to incite it and make it worse. Uh, and so that learning comes through, again, the verses that we're doing in Michelet here uh, and learning how to deal with individual types of people. Okay, and Mona, I hope I'm answering your question. Please let me know if I'm not. Ah, uh, yes, Prescott. Freedom of speech versus wisdom of speech. Yeah, theoretically, I have the freedom to say what I want, but it certainly isn't a good idea all the time particularly if I don't want some very bad consequences. If your boss comes in and is being, you know, a particular way with you that you find irritating, screaming at them, yeah, maybe I have freedom of speech to do that, but probably will have a consequence of shortening my tenure with that organization, which may not be a consequence that I want. Uh, so, okay, good, Mona, thanks. Uh, Jerry got you, you know, sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's men and sometimes it's women. Uh, and we all encounter them and that's part of, uh, you know, part of our challenge in life. So, okay, any other questions before I make one more point about this verse? <laughs> ah, Mona, I understand. Sometimes we have to hold back to what we really would like to say because we realize, oh, I would so like to let that person have it. And yet, when I look ahead and think about it, I think, and you know what? If I do, I'm going to have a big mess that I have to go clean up. And personally, I don't like cleaning up messes. So I will bite, hopefully bite my tongue and say, you know, yeah, I would like to tell that person off, but that probably wouldn't be the smartest thing to do right now for me or for them. Uh, and so, you know, maybe you wait and go find an empty soundproof room and you go tell the wall off. Uh, and, you know, get it out that way. But uh, we, we need to consider the long-term consequences. So. Okay. One more point. If you look at the physical world and the laws of nature as we're looking at it now, and as you go through verse by verse uh, and see how it works, you also start to get a feeling about the wisdom of God. It's not a magical thing, you know, as we've discussed, that somehow God's going to get you. But you see that he created a whole system here. The science of the physical world all fit into a philosophy of good and evil. When you start seeing that, you start seeing the real wisdom of God. You see every aspect of how you connect up the, uh, the philosophy of Torah, the philosophy of Proverbs, and you see it working in everyday life uh, and how the very laws of nature coincide with that. Uh, and that really helps you see uh, the wisdom of God. Uh, it's a beautiful system that he created. Uh, and when you start seeing these ideas and the King Solomon's wisdom and how these systems all fit together, it's a beautiful thing. Again, it's not a magical thing like, you know, the hand of God coming down and doing something like that. But you see it actually operating in everyday life. 
and you know, even just from the book of Proverbs, which deals with everyday life, you see the wisdom and the beauty of the ideas uh, and how the world works and how God created it to work that way. A person can really be successful if he knows and understands reality and lives in accordance with that. That is the idea of living in God's world, and that is getting up to the question of what, what is God's will. That is living in accordance with God's will, where you're using your mind to know and understand and live in accordance with reality. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz made an interesting illustration. He said, a lot of people have the desire to control the physical world. Uh, control it from disease, control it from famines, control it from war, uh, and, and things like that. Now, for the first, first few thousand years of life on Earth, uh, the people tried an experiment they called religion. And they sacrificed animals, they sacrificed people, they tried all kinds of things uh, in order to control the world through those sacrifices. And it didn't work. Then scientists came along and they also had a desire to control the world, but they wanted to control it through understanding and harnessing the laws of nature. And they were more successful. Uh, even though that's not necessarily the reason why we study, uh, but they studied in order to be able to figure out how does this work and what can I do and how can I control it. And by finding out the reality of how cause and effect and one thing to another, and laws of gravity and laws of math and laws of physics, they were able to uh, help us to be able to do things today that, you know, 100, 200 years ago, not even thinking about a thousand years ago, would have seemed miraculous. Uh, now, the reason that we study is because we want to relate to truth and reality. And as we do that, we start to see God's wisdom in the world. And that, by seeing it, brings us closer to God. So the, the act of actually seeing this wisdom is a step of getting closer to God. But the only way that a person can be truly successful is through seeing reality. And that, again, is the idea of Proverbs, where you live a life where you rationalize uh, excuse me, rationally analyze every aspect of the physical world, and then you live in accordance with that. Uh, and you don't have to do it all by yourself because that's why we have the Torah, and that's why we have the book of Proverbs to, to guide us in that effort. So the verse is talking about where you desire to cover up your evil. Uh, and it's telling you, don't rely on the idea that you won't get caught, because you will. It's just a virtual certainty that you will. So now when you look at newspapers and you see, you know, the kinds of things we were talking about earlier where people are getting found out about things that they've tried to cover up even though they were trying to put themselves out as uh, with a, you know, a public front, if you will, that looked really good. And now, you know, all the stuff behind the scenes comes out. Now you'll be able to see that through uh, the eyes of Proverbs and the eyes of Torah uh, that are taught through this verse. Okay, any questions I can answer on this verse or anything we've talked about? Okay, then I'll thank you all very much for coming tonight, and I hope you'll be able to join us next week.